0: So many consumers really want to do the right thing and they're looking for where do I recycle this product or how do I reuse this product and when the answer is you can't, that's a design flaw, like that's a manufacturer error. And so that's something that I think is a good way to start to shift how we shop and where we're buying from and and the responsibility and accountability that we give to the companies um, that are creating products we use.
1: Hello and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that bring you no end to aha moments. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. But here you're gonna hear conversations with people who are in that wave, who are changing the future for us all. It is still an amazing world out there and we're gonna introduce you to the people making it that way. If you're tuning out the negative news like so many of us, this podcast and the Mothership website at The Goodness Exchange can be your source for instant access to good people, amazing progress, and insights that are going uncelebrated right now. Hi, my name is Dr. Linda Ulrich, and I'm the founder of The Goodness Exchange and the host of this podcast, and, you know the purpose here of both efforts is to put a spring in your step again so we can all live with less fear and more joy. So today we're going to get right on top of that with an amazing interview with a wonderful person, Jessica Schreiber. Jessica is part of this see it, solve it generation of social entrepreneurs. She's got an inspiring story that we can all use to help us find what we are uniquely built to contribute large and small, and making the world a little better place. And her journey of the last six and a half years has no end to the insights that we can use in our daily lives. So I'm super excited to share her story. We wrote an article at the Goodness Exchange that you can look up, actually we'll put a link to it in the show notes, about Jessica's work and her team and all the things that she's discovering that we can all apply last winter at some point. I'm going to let Jessica tell her story, but She is essentially championing this concept that 21 billion pounds of fabric goes into our landfills every year in the United States alone. Maybe that number is even bigger since we wrote the article. But she discovered this as a part of her just working journey after college. And I'm going to let her tell the story, but she is doing something about it in most clever ways. She has amazing ways that that they're working with volunteers. She has a new business model that she's going to share with us for nonprofits. So let's get to it. Jessica Shriver, welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast.
0: Hi, thanks for having me, I'm excited. Well, I tell you, we spoke
1: quite some time ago and you've dropped a few things on me that I have never forgotten. And I've kept circling back to these concepts sometimes with other guests on this podcast. But let's start right off. With this notion that we most, that most of us have about sustainability and recycling. We're thinking about composting and we're thinking, oh, even maybe way out there, like the group, the company out of Vancouver that's, that collected six million chopsticks during the pandemic and they're turning them into furniture and household oh, goods. Yeah. Did you hear about that? It's so exciting. And then there's just no end to people being clever like that. And then it comes to the clothes we have on our backs. I don't think most of us had any notion about what was going on in the fabric world until lately. And I skim the Wall Street Journal and New York Times every day just to keep up on the news. And it's coming up more and more. So I think you were a little ahead of your time six and a half years ago. So share us
0: the story. Sure, yeah. So I started working in textile waste in 2011, I was interning at New York City's Department of Sanitation, and New York City had just launched their clothing recycling program. It was one of the first in the country. They needed help in it set up. So I really got to see sort of how a program like this is conceived, implemented, how it rolls out. And that was really because they did a waste study. It showed 6% of New York City's waste is clothing and shoes and home goods, all textiles, and the thought was, if we could make it easier for people to donate that material instead of throwing it away, maybe we could divert some of that from landfill. And so the program put bins and apartment buildings, basements, laundry rooms, lobbies, just so that people didn't have to haul huge bags of clothing to a local nonprofit, but instead could donate from home. So that was how I got my start in working in textile waste was kind of seeing how much clothing New Yorkers threw away.
1: And you're, you actually have a college degree in something related to, what was that?
0: Yeah, I, um, in undergrad, I studied biology and education. My thought was you should know the science. We should also know how to like talk about it and break it down and communicate it. And so I thought education was a good way to like learn how to do that. And I kind of just focused those a little bit more in grad school. I studied climate science and basically communication, like public outreach and so, yeah, I was the only one in my climate program that was like, let's talk about trash. <laughs> but it is a really important component of studying climate change and like our resource system.
1: Yes. I mean, I think it's a good example, Jessica, about, I mean, I'm sure when you're sitting in some late night session in your master's program, we thinking someday I will be masterminding what we do with all the waste fabric in New York City. I mean, is that, would that seem like a leap if you put yourself back in, into the mindset you had?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just so thrilled to get the internship with annotation and start to like understand how waste works. And I was so just, it's physical and there's a lot of operational components, but there's so much sociology in it too, like the psychology of like, why? why is this something that's no longer valuable? Or is this something that's still valuable? And that's two two different people would answer that question differently. And so there's so much that has a cultural component to it that I'm just fascinated by everything that happens when we're done with things.
1: I never thought of the sociology. You're the first person in this whole world of solutions. I've done oh, way over a hundred interviews now. Who's ever mentioned how the sociology of what they're, the problem they're solving factors in like what we're, what's going on in our mind when we're done with something. Can we take a little detour? I definitely, I can't wait to have people listen to more about your model. I'm sure they have questions, but while we're here, you shared with me this notion about how we have it in our heads that when we buy something, it's our responsibility forever thereafter. And that really lets manufacturers entirely off the hook. For everything thereafter. And you have some notions that that can expand our way of thinking about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting cultural thing that we've taken on to, or maybe have been marketed to believe very strategically. But yeah, I think in general, past the point of sale, a company sells something to us and we take it home. After that, it's ours. And that means it's ours to take care of in our homes. It's ours to dispose of. It's the public's to dispose of in terms of landfill incineration, et cetera. It really becomes like public property a little bit after the individual's then using it. And it's really interesting that that has happened in that way, that that ownership has been so fully transferred because so much of what you can do with something at the end of its life is actually a design decision it's what materials it's made out of. It's how it's constructed. Is it recyclable? Is it toxic? (laughs) Even things just like knowing the local recycling laws, but all of that is like a design decision that manufacturers could spend time with to think about taking back that product and breaking it down and reusing it. Or how is the end consumer, how long are they going to use this? And I don't think that those are questions that manufacturers and designers want to take on. (laughs) It's a lot of responsibility, a lot of extra like financial investment and time invested to make sure that there's full responsibility for what they're putting into their world. It's a lot easier to say, past point of sale is not our worry. And so that was something that was really interesting to me um, in working in waste was So many consumers really want to do the right thing and they're looking for where do I recycle this product or how do I reuse this product? And when the answer is you can't, that's a design flaw, like that's a manufacturer error. And so that's something that I think is a good way to start to shift how we shop and where we're buying from and and the responsibility and accountability that we give to the companies that are creating products we use.
1: It's just kind of mind-boggling when you think about it, right? As long as we're just complicit in this whole thing, as long as we accept that burden of ownership, and we don't demand that they make the end of life a part of how they design this thing.
0: In the end, too, it's really subsidized. We did we did some research into like New York City's. This was years ago, but I think the budget is probably similar. If you look at just the cost to pick up 6% of the trash and bring it to landfill, because that 6% was textiles, and that was what I was working on, the city was spending $60 million a year to dispose of textiles. And so that is where I think that's a manufacturer responsibility, because it becomes a taxpayer burden. The disposal that cities do becomes a taxpayer burden. And If we could recycle it instead, if it could be making the city money instead because they could contribute to the feedstock for recycling. There's just so many more options, but manufacturers right now aren't required to think about those options.
1: Okay. All right. So this gets us to your business model. Which is so cool. Okay, so first of all, just give us an overview of the of the problem. We don't spend a lot of time on the problem on this podcast. We're all about the solution, but give us an overview of how it. I, I had never never knew that for every one pound of, of clothing waste that I personally produce, it takes forty pounds of waste to get me that clothing. Talk to us about how this whole thing actually works from a 100,000-foot look, and then you can tell us about your business model.
0: Sure, yeah. I think that's one thing that we don't think about often is how much waste businesses are creating. And so really what Scrap is looking at, because I worked for years in the post-consumer textile recycling world, um, was that businesses are also creating the same waste in a different form. It's not used clothing; It's usually excess fabric, unused yarn, unused leather. Just there's excess everywhere throughout the, the chain of production. Um, and so what FabScrap does is work with businesses and starting to hold businesses more accountable for the waste that they're creating in their offices. And we do that by providing a pickup, of their unwanted materials, and then we sort it for recycling or reuse. Um, And that is an option that they never had before to do something a little bit more responsible and sustainable, Um, but it also, the way that we're set up, holds them a little bit more accountable because it's a service that they pay for. So the same way that they pay to have their trash removed or have their paper recycled they pay to have their textile waste responsibly handled. And they do that, I think, not required by law yet, but I think they do that because customers really want to know how is this business being sustainable and they want to have answers for that. And so I think there's, in the core of this, there's a lot of actual like individual power here that brands are listening to consumers, but we hold them accountable by making their waste part of their bottom line. And I think that's a really powerful powerful place for them to start to bring in those costs and internalize the cost of their practices
1: yeah this is a shift so at how it used to be was that manufacturer that was manufacturing clothing they would just have all the the cut out ed- edges of fabric or the fabric they decided not to use or the over whatever they ordered that was over they would just shove it in a dumpster pay the normal trash pickup bill, and also it would go to some landfill somewhere. It's that simple, right? right? And yeah. that amounted to 6% of New York City's garbage.
0: That was, so here's the other interesting thing. 6% of New York City's waste is textiles. But cities all across the country are municipal waste numbers as a whole for the United States are only looking at what residential waste numbers. So like, they're only looking at what individuals throw out businesses actually don't have to report their waste. They're not regulated in the same way. There's not the same accountability. And so it was something that I found really frustrating working at sanitation was I was trying to educate 7 million people in New York state, what recycling laws they're supposed to answer or they're supposed to follow. But businesses don't have the same laws. And that was really frustrating for me because they create so much more waste. Like you said, for every pound we throw away as an individual, the business throws away 40. So businesses are so much more responsible for the waste crisis and they're not being held to the same standards that we are as individuals. And I thought that was a really important shift just to like make that public that like, Hey, if we're required to do these things, businesses should be required to do them too.
1: I know when I think about um, some cities, I've, I have friends, I live in Vermont and it's very, very rural here, but I have friends who live in cities that tell me this, this stringent recycling processes that they have to go through or just (laughs) <laughs> really, really serious. And I, so I was just shocked to learn there was no regulation of business waste. And then textiles it,
0: are so, so huge. So tell us, tell us about your business model. So, yes. Yeah, so what we do is we pick up the fabric from brands. We're working with over 800 fashion companies now, mostly with their design office and picking up excess material that's created during the design process. So like I said, unused cones of yarn, button dippers, lots of yardage of usable, beautiful fabric, unused leather skin. We pick that up and it comes to our warehouses and we're sorting it with volunteer help for either reuse or recycling. The best part is reuse, like when we can reuse something. And so we have two fabric thrift stores and one online store. And basically, it's a way to make this waste from an industry anonymous and accessible. So you can find this like beautiful discarded fabric from Marc Jacobs, Oscar de la Renta, J. Crew, Gap Express. It's all available in our thrift stores, but it's anonymous. It's just fab scrap fabric at that point. It's thrift store prices, and it's all saved from landfill, which is great. So we're reusing as much as we can. It tends to be about 60%. And then inevitably there's pieces that are too small to reuse or, and this is a growing issue or they're proprietary. They've got logos and patterns on them that brands would not want resold. So if it's too small to use or proprietary, it gets shredded and that's what we're calling recycling. It becomes insulation, carpet padding, mattress stuffing. It's no longer really identifiable as fabric, but it still has like a useful life. Um, those fibers are still put into circulation again.
1: Yeah, the video that we put in the in the article about fab scrap that there was a point where the interviewer you were showing her this great big container full of what I recognized as probably the stuff that carpet padding is made of. exactly yeah all kinds of uses for that i'm sure and more to come in the future right insulation and everything else that's lovely so volunteers are integral to this whole process right and i just of all the things that make me smile about your project it's of course how would you choose it's like choosing your favorite child But because I just love everything about what you're doing. But the volunteer thing makes my heart sore. I mean that you are giving people an opportunity to have some fun, do, do something that they love with others who are like-minded. It's just a win all the way around. Tell us all about some volunteer things.
0: You know, it's funny you say that because the volunteer program is also like one of my favorite parts of how we operate. And it was the least planned so when we started, I knew there were businesses that had the waste. I knew there were individuals or small companies who could use the fabric. But then when people kind of heard about this system I was putting together, they said, I don't work at a company and I don't sew, but I want to help. What can I do? And I thought, well, we could use help sorting. <laughs> you just want to come to the warehouse and like help us sort the fabric. And that wish grew really fast to where we said, okay, everybody come on Wednesdays. And then very soon we were five days a week. Now we're two sessions a day, five days a week. We've had over 10,000 people come and help out. It helps, I think, but as a thank you, we let volunteers take home five pounds of fabric for free. So I think it's a really important like thing in our diversion metrics that we're saving additional fabric from landfill by giving away free fabric. And our goal from day one has been to give away as much as we sell But I think it's a a way for us to give back because this is the people who come in and sort now are students. They're entering the industry. I think it's important that they're sorting and seeing the waste because they go into the industry with a whole new perspective of how to use materials, how to sample materials, what should be thrown away and when. And so then they also get to leave with five pounds for their fashion school projects like a win-win for everybody. And that felt like the best way for us to give back to the industry as it moves forward is that education component, that resource that we could be for fabric. And one other thing that I just like love about the program is it does tend to be a lot of fashion students, but overall the volunteer that we've had are just so diverse in age and background in every way that you possibly can. be <laughs> Like yeah. a lot of retirees, home sewers, little Girl Scouts coming to make like Halloween costumes, <laughs> just the whole gamut of people getting involved. And I think it's because there's an opportunity to get involved. And yes, there's free fabric at the end, but it's a way to get your hands into something where normally we would never see what businesses throw out, especially not something as exclusive as fashion. And so it's a little peek behind the curtain that I think people enjoy. You know,
1: and isn't that isn't that just all a part of an awakening that we all need to go through in, in just a million genres in our world? We just need an awakening. I, I think people are basically good and like you say, if you give people an opportunity that you know somebody's gonna find your nonprofit and help there and somebody's gonna find something else that's in their sweet spot. it, it all requires kind of an awakening. Like most people want to know that there's a solution to a problem. And then
0: they'll do what they can to help. Yeah. And I think feeling involved is what what really keeps people coming back is like, they feel like they're contributing to something good. And it's so physical. You can tell at the end of your sorting session, you actually weigh it out yourself. You can tell your impact like at that. session.
1: So that's very interesting. Did you try a birthday party or two? I love the Girl Scouts. I mean, are um, there... Is there no yeah. end to what can be done with this?
0: Really, it's so like with younger kids, we sometimes do color sorting instead of like something with scissors. So we've gone pretty young. We've had a couple groups with disabilities come in to do the same thing. Yeah, we've had a few requests for birthday parties. We host the bin sort as just like a social sorting session. And we serve wine and beer and people can hang out and have a drink and sort. So it's definitely it can be turned into almost anything.
1: Okay. So a lot of folks that listen to this podcast have, you know, ideas of their own or are heavily involved in in things. I I hope that that we're giving people all kinds of new thoughts of that the creative ways you can engage people. I love what you said a few minutes ago it, it, that it was the last thing you thought of. Like the volunteers have become such a big part of it, but it wasn't what you focused on in the very beginning.
0: Yeah, it I was really focused on the business model like how are we exchanging like funds and good? That would make it, To make it a business work, you have to figure out those pieces. But the human component and the time component and just like the community that we've built is so beautiful and engaged and just really committed, I think, to, solving the problem and really cares about climate change really cares about the future of the industry and giving back and that's the piece that i don't think fabscrap would exist without our volunteers yes
1: okay so we're going to take a break and when we come back we're going to talk more about what you wish people knew and i'm going to have you educate us all on how we can be part of a solution right where we are and all that so we'll take a break and we'll be back with jessica Schreiber and fabscrap hi Dr. Linda here. First, thanks for joining us today. If you're inspired by the uplifting conversation we're having, I can boost that feeling with something new that we just created for the Goodness Exchange community. Our holiday gift guide just came out. As you might guess, we're trying to do as much good as we can with this effort to shine a light on the number of businesses that are making the world a better place. We've chosen 20 companies that give back to causes that we all care about, like people, animals, and the environment. There's something for everyone at every price point and some exclusive deals inside this gift guide at super. And if you're like me, the stress of finding quality gifts kind of take the joy out of the holiday. So this gift guide answers a lot of problems. And then there's this fact that most people I'm shopping for are very values-based consumers now. They don't want a lot more stuff in their lives that comes from companies that don't care. So this gift guide will make you proud of the gifts you give and will keep on giving long after the new year. This curated guide, you'll find companies who share a passion for leaving goodness and progress in their wake. Do some shopping through the gift guide and they'll feel like you've got a superpower going for making a difference. And then subscribe to the Goodness Exchange. As always, subscribe to the Goodness Exchange. We need to support media that matters, media that's sustainable in, its, in the way it makes us all feel. People who use the Goodness Exchange every day have a spring in their ship. They radiate joy and confidence because they know a more complete picture of the world. You can do more. And be more in the lives of your kids, your coworkers, your family, and the people around you if you're filled with stories of goodness, remarkable, ingenious solutions, and progress that's happening out there. Get instant access to what's right with the world every day to change your future. Head to the Goodness Exchange and join us for a 14-day trial on us. See if it doesn't put us free in your step to know what's right with the world. Thanks. Hi, we're back with the founder of Fab Scrap. Jessica Schreiber is this amazing woman who is part of a generation of, I call them solutionaries. This is a, a visionary. I'd say you're visionary and a solution. It's a generation of folks who look at a problem and then look at what they've got in their background, in their experience, in their community around them. And they started solving it. Jessica saw the problem of fabric waste in the New York City waste management system. And it started around this journey that we're talking about today that's so wonderful. Jessica, talk to us about what's going on with fabric in our own. Like, are there things that we can do that we can do as
0: consumers to affect this issue? Yeah. I mean, you can't really choose how much fabric a company buys to make their product or how they sample their fabric from. Mill, but I have seen the power of the consumer in businesses wanting to answer consumer questions. And so that's where I feel like if you have questions about how something is made, who made it, where it was made, what it's made of, businesses are now feeling a lot of responsibility to answer those questions. And so I think the more that we ask questions, the more that we'll start to see more transparency more accountability. So one thing I think is just like the issues that you care about, ask questions of the brand that you shop at. And then in thinking about like your personal wardrobe, I think one of the things that took me a while to internalize is that polyester is plastic. And when you're wearing polyester, you're wearing plastic against your skin and it's not biodegradable. And so wherever you can, like natural fibers, cotton, linen, Silk, et cetera, definitely the way to go. And learning how to care for our clothing, I think is something that we've all kind of moved past. And so, learning how to care for clothing so it lasts as long as possible is a really sustainable thing to do. Like, mend it, figure out what you're the little label on your clothing, mean in terms of care and dry cleaning, how you wash it, if you iron it, et cetera. That's really going to extend the life of the clothing you buy. And that's an important piece to reducing textile waste.
1: Yeah. The mending part, you know, I grew up in a generation where girls had to take home that was a long time ago. I wanted to take shop class for sure. I was already starting down that highway and it taught me I did have to learn to sew. And not that I can, I don't think I've ever made anything from a pattern and actually made a shirt or a dress or anything, but I married a man who's six foot six and I have a daughter who's six feet tall and a son who's six, 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 and everything needs to be let out or taken in, or you can't buy anything that's long enough without the waist being like this. So sewing, so mending was a part of my, all my life because I had to repair clothes or keep them in use longer because I knew how hard it would be to find a pair of jeans for a six foot tall girl, you know, 15 years ago. You, that was serious. Yeah. Enough. So talk to us about mending. I remember a, an article that we did at the Goodness Exchange many years ago about a gal on a college campus who just saw, she knew how to sew really well. And of course, almost none of her cohorts did. So that's how she gave back. She would just set up the oh, sewing right. machine in the in some uh, campus building every Saturday. And if she could do it really quickly, she'd do it right there you could leave her her things. Talk to us about repair instead of replace. I mean,
0: I personally think It's taken me a few years to learn how to sew and like be handy with a sewing machine or even just a hand stitch. But it's so empowering because I think about how many things I didn't, I had, but didn't wear and didn't utilize fully because they just didn't, they weren't like quite right. And it was always kind of uncomfortable when I wore them. And so to be able to just like make that alteration or it's something that you love, you worn it so much, there's holes or wear in it. To be able to patch that up and continue to love it, there's a sentimental piece. The other thing that I think is like so important is when you start to learn the skills and like what it takes to just do a small mend or make an alteration. I think it gives you a whole new appreciation for the clothing that you buy. And that like I think there's an assumption now because so many things are done by machine that when you're at H and M or Target or Walmart, it's all machine made clothing. But still, to this day. So much of what we see is made by hand. And so it's really, it helps you understand the skill that's needed to do that. And it helps you value the clothing differently. And so that t-shirt, if it's hand-sewn, is probably worth more than $5. And it starts to make you think of where is the company finding those cost savings. And that can be unfortunate, but that's that goes back to those questions how are we selling this t-shirt for $5? And asking those questions becomes really important. And so I've seen so many people who, when they start to take on their own practice of mending or altering or trying to make a garment from scratch, which is, I'm so astounded by the people that I've met who are making things totally from scratch from our fabric. I think it just gives you a whole new appreciation for what's in our closet and how it's made.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a growing little bit of a cottage industry job sector now too. It probably isn't very hard to find someone who does that for a living in your neighborhood. I think I'd take a little bit of research and you'll find people that that can keep all your clothes going.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, speaking in, in New York, there's still quite a bit of tailors. Most dry cleaners can alter or tailor something. I think it's, I think what's When you're thinking about these businesses, the scale is so important. So definitely, like, you can find someone who can help you out with your one piece. But when you think about the hundreds of thousands of sweatshirts Mm -hmm. that get produced every day, that's that's a massive workforce. And we've outsourced a lot of that in the U.S. And so I think that's the other piece to think about is maybe it's easy to find someone who can help you with your one piece, but who's creating the millions of pieces that are Mm -hmm. produced each year.
1: Is it as simple as going to a, the website for the company that we want to buy something from, going to the contact us line and saying, hey, tell me about your waste management system? I mean, how do we affect change?
0: I know I've never tried the contact page. <laughs> where right? think, what do you do? Where I see the most response actually, and like where I see companies feel the most pressure is actually social media. It's tweets, it's Instagram questions, it's something that goes viral about a bad practice. And I think they really, because social media has also become their main sales channel, they're very, very sensitive to questions and accusations on social media, because that's also where they're trying to sell. And so they want to have answers, they want to put forth information. And so if you can't find it on their website and start asking tweet the brand or Instagram at the brand, start asking these questions. I do think they feel a real, a real sense of urgency to to have some information to show. Okay. So we know New York City's got
1: this covered. <laughs> does Detroit, does Chicago, does LA? I mean, are there other people doing what you do or are we waiting for those heroes to arrive?
0: I mean, we we haven't found any companies that are doing what we're doing in other parts of the country. We did Just open our second location in Philadelphia, which has been really exciting. Good way for us to kind of get our feet wet with a new city, but at least travel between the two is pretty easy. And we're still pre-pandemic. We were in Los Angeles and looking at warehouse space and starting to interview people. And I'm really excited to start to return to those plans later next year. And so hopefully between East Coast, West Coast, we can kind of hit the big markets where there's a lot of brand activity. And then through our online store, we've shipped to all 50 states. So we're able to redistribute all of this beautiful designer fabric across the country and get it into the hands of makers who can use it, which is really cool.
1: Lovely. So your business model now, just for someone who may have just the right skill set or just the right interest, your business model is not, we're not looking at a nonprofit profit that's basically eking by like so many just waiting for the next good, happy turn of events. You have created a business model that makes this thing turn along and it's a non-profit, but it could be yeah. somebody's, somebody's livelihood, right?
0: I mean... Yeah. I am not a natural fundraiser. And so I didn't want to go into a, build a a business where that was going to be our sole source of income. It's not my goal. I've gotten better, but I really wanted the business to be self-sustaining and fundraising to be for like big moments of growth or like the next project. And so we are a nonprofit, but that doesn't mean that you can't make money. And that was like, it took me a while to get my head around that. That nonprofit doesn't mean that At the end of the year, your bottom line is zero. It means that there's no ownership. So if Fabstrap does well, there's no owners taking a piece of that profit. I don't personally do better. None of the board members get any kind of like incentive from that. So with no ownership, we can still make a profit, but that profit stays in the business to continue the operations, to continue to grow what we're doing. So we have two main sources of income, the fabric sales from our thrift stores. And then the service fees that we charge all of the companies to recycle with us. So one half is kind of B2B, like we're a a vendor to 800 brands recycling their fabric. And then we're B2C and redistributing and recycling and reusing all of that fabric and getting it into the hands of people who can use it. And then when we do a fundraise, we apply for grants, we do big silent auctions and big fundraising moments throughout the year. It's for new projects so that we can take on something new and something creative and continue to grow this solution and be innovative in the space.
1: Wow. That's just lovely. I I think that people have this notion that you choose two career paths. There's one of two career paths. Either you, you give it all for the team and you live hand to mouth and you start a nonprofit or, or just volunteer your way through life, or you just go for, go for the dollar. But it, it's way more. Complex than that, and people like you are coming up with these solutions. I'm sure your business team makes good li- li- livings, and we are making the world a better place. It's such an and proposition.
0: It, I it's taken a few years. Like I will, I don't want to like downplay that there's years of sacrifice of the yes, salary absolutely. I could have been making elsewhere, and absolutely. the team could have been making elsewhere. But it is it does allow us to be a lot more stable and sustainable. And I think that's the important piece Is there's a lot of like longevity in doing it this way, because it's not just based on public funding and donation from the charity of others. It's because we're solving a problem and yes. really trying to be of service. Yeah. Well, I think I, I just wanted
1: to talk about that because there are people coming out of university every year that never want to work for the man. They want to make a difference right right away. And it's the more we can talk about the different kind of business models that are out there that can do good while doing good business, the better. Everybody yeah. needs to know that those two things making the world a better place is not mutually exclusive from doing
0: business. And good, I will say like I think I have a lot of idealist young employees that perhaps <laughs> Who definitely did not want to work for the man and particularly didn't want to go directly into fashion, which can be very corporate, very commercial, very exclusive and hierarchical. But I would kind of argue that I almost worked for the man of the man because I was working for the government, (laughs) which is the most bureaucratic that you could get. I learned so much from that because I I wouldn't totally tell people, like, don't go work for a corporation if that's not in line with your values. There's so much that I learned and could do inside the government and could do inside a business before I went on my own and did it myself. That like, you still have a lot of power even as an individual within existing systems. And I think that's important to remember that it's not an either or you can still bring your values to any workplace.
1: And make that a better place as well. Yeah, yeah lovely. And, and that's a good role point. The
0: corporate world probably needs
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and we keep talking about the man, the man, the man. Well, that's just a, an old-fashioned expression for some weird hi- hierarchical system yeah. that Hopefully usually included men, men at the top. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, so what do you wish people knew? I, before I let you answer that in full, I do want to make sure people, we. We didn't talk about the polyester issue as I'd like, but I'm personally making some huge choices. That's the first thing I do. I turn over the label and I've gotten so I don't even need to anymore. You can feel it. You yeah, can feel yeah. cotton versus polyester. But is that one of the big things that we can all do is just say no to plastic, even when it comes to our clothes?
0: I mean, where you can cut plastic anywhere, I think that's a, a win for the environment. And it's because plastic really that source is oil. It's crude oil. And so when we're talking about dependence on fossil fuels, where we can move away from that is is great. And I hear you. I'm expecting at the end of this year and looking at baby clothes and it was like, I really wanted to make sure we were looking at cotton. And at some point, it's easier than you think, but it just takes that little like ounce of awareness to choose something other than plastic.
1: Okay, good. So I really want people to come away with that little bit of insight. And talk to us about what you really wish people knew. Almost all the thought leaders we talked to, they can see a brighter future. They can see a vision of what's possible if the ideas they're working on just caught on and were the way we do things. Talk to me about what you really wish people knew.
0: Yeah, there's a few things. I mean, one, like you mentioned, the polyester is plastic. I would also just quickly say Bandex is not recyclable. So I know it's more comfortable to have some extra stretch in our clothing, but it immediately makes whatever that item is harder to recycle. So those are two quick pieces. I think looking holistically at the problem, one is that for so long textiles have been handled by nonprofits that we're decades behind other waste streams. In plastic recycling, you've got optical sorters and peps of air that sort things into their different categories. And textile recycling is just decades behind that. Everything still happens by hand. We have very few end-of-life options. So I'm excited to see more private companies enter the space and some investment in the space is going to be really important to mechanize the sorting process, to have more options for fiber-to-fiber recycling, like textile back into textile. That doesn't exist yet. And that is really exciting to me. When you see things marketed right now as recycled fabric, it's important to note that's usually plastic bottles being turned into polyester, not fabric back into fabric. And so I know fabric fabric is possible, but we're not quite there yet in tech. And then finally, on the accountability piece, having worked in city government, I know how effective it is when the city said textiles can't go to landfill anymore. I was at New York City when they made that that law about electronic waste, and it was amazing to see how manufacturers had to change their behavior, how individuals change their behavior, just night and day difference when that law went into effect. And so I do think how we vote, how we work through political issues, and there's a real role for policy and the change that we want to see.
1: Yes, it, it is so true. I, my husband and I were traveling with for the goodness exchange in Kenya at the time when they just suddenly banned plastic bags.
0: Oh, no, wow. no
1: preparation, no no not, not much public warning, just one day, boom, you couldn't get a plastic bag to do anything. And it was a funny kind of week of pandemonium. And we were there long enough to see that pandemonium died down and people getting clever and working through it. And we can work through it. I mean, we do.
0: Yeah. And for the government to say like, this is bad for the environment. This is bad for individuals, bad for business. Like this is a bad system. Let's change it. I mean, you can see the effects that like new businesses pop up. There's new creativity. Individuals figure it out. There's a lot of ingenuity. We're just a little too married to some old systems, I think.
1: Yes. I remember walking to my the people we were visiting in her garage. It was filled with tiny clotheslines with plastic baggies drying. It was like, it was like every plastic bag she had previously owned now became like gold because she knew uh, other than going to the United States, she was never going to have another plastic bag. Again. So
0: well, and thankfully they her. lacked for so long.
1: <laughs> that, well, and there you go. Right? Yeah. And that's a point too, that, that people who... I want to recycle and do the right thing. I I remember learning this point and it hit me like a Mack truck. So if we buy, for instance, I have a brand of shoes that I'm very proud of. The only shoe I wear, I'm not going to kick them under the, under the table, but they're made of plastic bottles. Now they last forever, absolutely forever. And, but am I really just postponing the landfill for this plastic bottle? Because it's like the plastic chairs we all buy for our deck or whatever if that's made of plastic bottles, so it's still going to break when my 270-pound husband sits on it, and it's still going to wind up in the landfill because there's absolutely nothing you can do with those plastic chairs. So recycling, what we're moving to, I think, is what you're telling me is like a closed-loop system. So once things are created, there's a plan forever for them.
0: And I mean, the big criticism of recycling has always been that it's a Band-Aid. Like, in one way, it's because if I know I can recycle that plastic bottle, then it's okay for me to buy that plastic bottle. And so it doesn't actually change consumer behavior. And then, yeah, like you're saying, it might extend it for another new years, but eventually the end destination is the same. And so that's why really thinking through what our systems are, what we're taking from the earth and how it returns to the earth is so important. And that, you know, cotton is going to biodegrade as cotton does in nature. And so I... It is kind of a criticism of a lot of recycling systems that it's delaying the inevitable. But because of how much exists and how much product has been created in so many different forms, that delay is important. That delay does give the environment some time and hopefully us some time to figure out something better. So I wouldn't say throw it out because who cares? It's all a band-aid. <laughs> I would still say like it's still that delay is still an important part of the process we're in.
1: Absolutely. And there are people just like you thinking of the next thing. I interviewed a young man. It that podcast should be already out by the time this one broadcasts. A fellow in India who started out in kind of with the same interest. You were he was just more globally, what are we doing with all this waste? And they did not have a, a garbage pickup system in this small rural area in India. And he started out collecting from neighbors with sixty pounds of garbage to figure out what was in Rural waste and then decide what to do with it. And now he's collecting that in metric tons. Wow. And disposing of every single bit with the most elaborate sorting system you could ever imagine. He's an acumen fun fellow. Now he has been really recognized as maybe having a model that's transportable to the world. And so it's coming, it's coming. We, maybe, yes, maybe, maybe my little, my little shoes give that plastic bottle a little bit more life till somebody figures out what to do next. But thank you so much for being one of those people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So tell us, I like to end with, with a question about what do you need to happen next? You know, if people are listening to this podcast and they're inspired and, they could help you or help similar efforts where they're from or do anything. It's always lovely to tell people what's next. What do you need to have happen next to just yeah. meet to the next level? So
0: I'll wrap this list with like, if you want to get involved, you can shop on our online store at our locations. You can come and volunteer. We're always happy to meet people in person or donate fabscrap.org slash donate. We're always fundraising because we've always got some new ideas in mind. The big one, like I said, is I'm really hoping we can return to our plans to open on the West Coast at the end of next year. So fundraising to kind of bring this operation to the West Coast. The other big project that we're fundraising for is right now we work with a third-party shredder, but that industry is pretty archaic, very secretive, kind of ramping down. And I would love to bring that shredder into our process and own that process and be really transparent about it. Make the recycled product, something that's sexy to reuse and insulation and furniture and carpet padding, like really give new life to those fibers and things that they're going to be in for years and years to come, like new construction and new furniture. So we're really hoping to purchase a shredder and kind of save that industry and bring new light to that industry. And then, We have such unique data because we're collecting the waste of 800 companies. As more and more fashion and waste policy happens, I really hope that we can contribute to making that realistic. And like you're saying, when something gets rolled out and there's no plan for it, Not the most ideal thing. And so it's better if it's informed by real numbers, by real values, and the industry can weigh in. And there's a real collaborative process. And I think being an NGO allows us to kind of be that third party to help navigate that process. And we sit on such unique data to help make concrete decisions. So those are some of the things that we're excited about coming up. Okay, so everything that
1: Jessica and I have mentioned today, everything she just talked about, we'll make sure that she gives us really good links to put in the show notes, so you can, if you're inspired, you can help. Maybe she'll give us some articles to read that that didn't uh, that I didn't get to ask her about that she might might that she knows we might find interesting. Thank you so much. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to finally get to talk about this. We're going to put a link to the article we wrote about. Jessica, at the Goodness Exchange, we invite you to join us at the Goodness Exchange. It is the place for instant access to all the good that's happening in the world. And we have to be good for our family and our businesses and our volunteers. And the only way we're gonna know that it's truly an amazing world still, and to be able to inhabit and live with that kind of presence of mind is to know about all the good that's happening in the world. So thank you, Jessica, for joining us and sharing your part.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to be able to speak to people who care so much. So thank you for letting us share what we do. Okay, well, I hope that all these
1: connections to goodness and progress will carry everyone through their week and all of us start finding the joy and wonder that we've been talking about. Thanks.